chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, it is always daunting to open up your word and have it speak to us. You, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, you, the absolute perfect being in all existence, you've seen fit to reveal yourself to us here in the pages of your sacred scripture, your holy Bible that we read and we study and we learn from. And that's what makes this opening up of this book and reading and thinking through it so absolutely intimidating and vital and yet joyful and life-producing. There are so many superlatives that we could use and think of when we come to the reading and understanding of your word. But Lord, we ask this singular thing that you through the preaching of your word here this evening, would do your work in our hearts. You would have your way with us. You would take this revelation that you are giving to us and you would do the work that you see fit in our lives. Lord, our desire to that end would be that we would know you better and love you more, Lord, at the end of this sermon than we did at the beginning. So fill us with your spirit. Speak to us and lead and guide our thoughts and our motions and our minds, Lord, all the way along. In your name, amen. Amen. The Gospel of John is, um, we talked a little bit about it last week, it's no small book. It is... um, in some ways, the very height of Christology in the New Testament. There are certain passages, we'll look at a few here in a few moments, like Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, that certainly give us a high Christology. When we come to this book, though, what we find is John giving us um, a fair deal of his first-hand account of his interactions with Jesus and who he was. And he starts here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Last week I didn't quite get to it, but there is um, some who would say that what John is doing here, because he wrote so late in the game, meaning it was probably the last gospel written, and maybe even one of the last books of the New Testament that was written for us, that he is taking a lot of Greek thought that has come about as a result of some of the other epistles and the other gospels having some wide reading and is playing off of some of this Greek thought that has come up, which is why he uses this word, word or logos. It is in the Greek. I 
personally don't think that's what John is doing here. Um, there's no reason for John to get crafty, right? There's no reason for him to try to repackage Jesus, which is what people who bring this issue up are saying without saying it. That what happened is, well, the Jesus of Mark and Matthew and Luke had been out there for some time and people had seen it and they'd kind of, you know, turned their noses up, as it were, a little bit at it. This Jewish religion that was taking over parts of the empire, but the sophisticated amongst them weren't having much of it. And so John comes in and he cleverly repackages the gospel in some more philosophical Greek language of the day in order to try to get this into the minds and into the hearts of those who might be a little more educated or erudite or sophisticated. And John, I think, is a man of simplicity. He's a fisherman. Gotta love that, right? For all of his life up to the point and even after the point of meeting and knowing Jesus and interacting with him, he's a blue-collar worker. In the book of Acts, when Peter and John are brought before the council after getting that guy who was crippled there at the gate and lifting him up and fixing his legs, right? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee. Take your bed, take your mat, rise up and walk, right? If you don't know the story, if you know the story, you may even know the kid's song about that too. And they took him in and everyone was amazed because this guy was here jumping and leaping and praising God and just causing a big, huge ruckus. And of course, they couldn't have any of that. And Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and says, now what are you guys doing, man? Jesus is gone. Just let it die. And of course, Peter and John standing there say, hey, you judge if it's right for us to listen to you or listen to God. But as for us, we're going to listen to God. And they were exasperated with these guys because it says they were unlearned men. They weren't men of the academic world. These guys weren't in some pre-Christian seminary or something. Well, I guess walking with Jesus for three years might be a pre-Christian seminary, but you get my point, right? They weren't dissecting and picking apart, you know, uh, theology texts like we would if we were going to seminary today. These guys hung out with Jesus. They loved Jesus. They listened to Jesus. They lived with him for all of this time and were changed by him. And once he rose from the dead and the spirit fell upon them, they were absolutely new people. And when they were confronted with the Sanhedrin, the reason for the consternation at the Sanhedrin wasn't just these guys were unalerted men, but these guys were godly. These guys knew things. These guys had a confidence and an assurance that just some regular fishermen wouldn't have. Now, John, probably from this point, you know, in the book of Acts and in the gospel itself was, you know, he probably lived another 40, 50 years after the time and the events of this particular gospel. 
But I'll tell you one thing that I've learned, and I am reading this a little existentially, I understand, and I'm trying to put myself in the mind of John here, but the more I grow in my relationship with God, the less inclined I am to be very influenced or give a very lofty opinion of people who are the elite intellectuals of our day and age. In fact, I find a lot of what the elite intellectuals say to be very wanting. Hearing and listening to them and scratching my head going, what? And sometimes I even lament like the psalmist. And I say like the psalmist, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why do these Foolish, let me use biblical language, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, right? Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. Why do these foolish men have such an exalted place in our society when clearly they are carnal, when clearly they are otherworldly, meaning that they are following the prince and the power of the air, they are the sons who were following after him in disobedience. They truly are still by nature children of wrath, but yet they are so exalted and society falls all over themselves to listen to their very words. It's not impressive. And I imagine that once I get into my fifth decade of life and my sixth decade of life and they're coming up quick especially the fifth feels like each and every day getting a little closer it is feels closer anyways the less interesting those things become and my point is is here john after living 80 90 however old he was at the point when he is here writing his gospel i just don't see john or any of the apostles for that matter, thinking and scratching their heads and going, you know what we need is a philosophically sophisticated version of the Gospels to get the educated of society. That's not what John's doing. What John is doing, though, is he is taking biblical categories from the Old Testament, bringing them in and showing Jesus off for who he was being prophesied about in the Old Testament. In fact, he was even in the Old Testament, the revealer of God in many ways. And all John is doing is saying that the word, the revelation of God, right? The word is the revelation of God. It's the speaking forth of God when, in fact, we find in the Old Testament, Christ enter, pardon me, I give my hand there. God interacting with humanity in time and in space. It's Christ who's the one doing the revealing. When you see, for example, in the Old Testament, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, right? You find it in Joshua chapter 2, right? Remember there, as he's there before Jericho and he's kind of snuck up there and he's spying out to kind of see what he's going to do and how they're going to battle. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up and Joseph is re- Joseph. Joshua. <laughs> Joshua there, he's ready to pull out his sword and he says, are you with us or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord says, no, neither. I'm the captain of the armies of the Lord of hosts. And of course, Joshua falls down and he worships there at his feet and says, all right, 
How about Manoah, the father of Samson? Remember him there in the book of Judges? That desperately dark book has this shining light in it, as it were, for a moment, where Manoah and his wife, they haven't had a child, which is so common we find in the Old Testament. Women who are barren and all of a sudden the Lord shows up and promises them a child. And it happens with Manoah and his wife. And the angel of the Lord shows up first to his wife and says, you're going to have a child. And Manoah's like, dang, why didn't I get to see that? That's, of course, my paraphrase. But he's like, I wanted to see him too. So they come the next day and sure enough, the angel of the Lord appears there again and tells both of them that they are going to have a child. And then Manoah says, if this is so, here, let me cook you some food. And he's like, I'm not going to eat, but if you want to offer a sacrifice to God, go ahead and do it. And so he offers this sacrifice to the Lord there on the altar. And as the fire begins to rage up and consume that sacrifice, remember, the angel of the Lord steps into that fire and ascends into heaven. And Manoah and his wife are like, oh, we just saw God. And Manoah being the men are thick. Amen, men. (laughs) Manoah says, oh, no, God's going to kill us now. And Manoah's wife has to say, yeah, no. If God wanted to kill us, he would have done that already. No, he wanted to reveal himself to us. You see, when the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, we call them something. The big fancy word is theophany, or I like Christophany. Because when we find God, who is spirit, being revealed in some way to flesh and blood, it's Christ who's the one doing the revealing. And what John is doing here in indicating to us that the Word was with God and the Word was God was that the very revelatory work that God did was Jesus Christ himself. And so what John is doing right at the very beginning is filling in some gaps in your Old Testament knowledge. And those gaps would have been that the person who revealed or was the revelator of God himself was Jesus Christ. In fact, the very last book of the Bible, many people call Revelations. It's not the name of the book. It's not Revelations. It's one revelation, and it's the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. And he is the one doing the revelating or revealing through or to the apostle John. As he's writing it down. The very same one who's writing this book here. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. As much attention as this is given here in the gospel, it doesn't come up very often in the rest of the book. It occurs in verse 14. It occurs um, in 1 John chapter 1 and it occurs in Revelation chapter 19. But apart from that, Jesus isn't really called the word very much anymore because I think The point is made. The word is God and he is the part of God or the being within the Godhead, the personage within the Godhead who does the revealing work of the father. That's whom he is. Now, what we might say here at this point is that what John is doing is that John is taking us And bringing us, as it were, back to the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses prophesied that there was going to be a prophet 
who is going to come who is greater than himself. And remember, at that point, Moses was the greatest. Moses, nobody revealed more about God in the Old Testament, really, than Moses did. I mean, granted, you have a lot more books that were written by other people than you did Moses. But even the prophets of God, when they come and when they speak, they have a nearly singular message. And their singular message, nearly singular, they said a few other things, but for the most part, they came as prosecuting attorneys, saying, you have sinned against God, here's your list of sins, repent, or you're going to be punished. And we find that over and over and over in lots of different words and lots of different ways. But Moses was a prophet of a different caliber, of a different sort. He revealed God in multiple ways. He revealed the law, for example. He also, on top of the law, revealed things about God that they wouldn't have known beforehand, that he was gracious and kind and long-suffering to the thousand of generations that would come. That God was this good God who did have a righteous standard, but you get much more of him than you did with Abraham or with Noah with Cain, or even all the way back with Adam. And so Moses, this great and glorious prophet of the Old Testament, writes that there's going to come one, a prophet, who's going to be greater than even himself. And one of the offices that we're going to find as we go through this book, and we're going to come back to this theme often, is that Jesus fulfills the, bo- the offices of prophet, priest, and king. He is prophet, priest, and king. And here, right at the very beginning, John, he takes Christ, brings us back to the Old Testament, says he's the great revelator of God himself, this person, Jesus Christ, and then basically takes all of that that came before and sees its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ by saying the word was with God and the word was God. And just so you don't think I'm reading too much into it, for your homework, go read John sometime this week. And you'll see that's exactly what he's doing throughout the book. I've read John several times now in preparation for this. And each time I'm going through it, I see that more and more and more and more. That why he's beginning this way is because he's telling us that he is the great revelation of God Almighty as prophet. And he's going to go on. We're going to see he's priest and king as well. But that's crucial for us here right now. Because God is an oftentimes confusing being. Me and Joel were just talking about a friend of ours who calls himself agnostic, right? You know what that phrase means? It means we don't know. Ag, A, negates what comes after it, Gnosticism. Gnostic means knowledge. A, without knowledge. So an agnostic is someone who says, I don't have knowledge specifically about God. They're not quite atheists. They're not brave enough to say, oh yeah, there is no God. Or maybe they're honest enough to say, well, we just can't know. But either way, they're going to say, well, we just don't know about God. We just don't know about him. Well, the reason why is because the universe is vast and big and 
complicated. And some people say, well, there's lots of answers to that in physics and in the theory of evolution and science itself. In fact, science oftentimes is held up as the highest standard that one could have anymore. Well, science tells us, well, science tells us, well, this tells us here in science, and supposedly that's the be-all, end-all answer to all things. And I'm speculating a little bit, but I think the reason why people are willing to fall back onto that is because there's a little more comfort that comes through some dude in a coat in some lab somewhere saying, I came to this conclusion than having to stand before God Almighty one day and him saying, as he opens his books, what have you done? And you have to give an account for all of your actions and all of the words and all of the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And so while I talk that out and most people don't consciously think those thoughts, I have a hard time understanding why anybody else finds comfort in, you know, nerd dude figuring something out in some lab somewhere. Apart from that's more comfortable than that. And John doesn't want us to be number one, uninformed. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think John wants us to be comfortable. A prophet's job is not to give you comfort. A prophet's job is not to come and pacify your conscience. A prophet's job is not positive and encouraging like Caleb. A prophet's job is to grab a hold of your shirt and rattle you a little bit. A prophet's job is to come and reveal God Almighty to you in the midst of your regular, systematic, mundane, daily existence. The prophet's job is to say, wake up, folks. God is not only real, but God has you right where he wants you. And what are you doing in light of him existing and having created you? What are you doing with his revelation? What are you doing with his law that is on your heart? What are you doing with his son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect revelation of God Almighty in heaven? That's the prophet's job. The prophet's job is not one of peace and comfort. The prophet's job is one of bringing a lot of insecurity. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. I need that. If you're anything like me, then you're kind of bumbling through life a lot of times. You know, life is a lot of times like you're running down a hill and doing everything you can not to fall down the hill. It feels like that. And, you know, our kids look at us and kids plug yours for a second, but they think we know everything, but we don't. Spoiler alert, Hope. (laughs) We don't. And what I need because of that and because of so much more, but what I need is I need God to reveal himself to me because if it's up to me, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to, if God puts something in front of me, I am always going to fail at it. And God is so great and so glorious, but yet he's also so loving that he has condescended and he has reached down, as it were, with a hand. And, you know, I talked to Charlotte and we talked little baby talk. We were playing with toys this morning when I got up and I was a little purple hippo and she was a little 
orange tiger, and we were like, bah, 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 and we were playing, you know, it was cute. But that's kind of like God. Not that he's playing with us like toys, but that he condescends to our level and lisps and talks in a human babble to us that makes sense to us. But God is so much greater and so much vaster than that. But you see, this is Jesus. This is the role he has within the Godhead is the one to be the lisper, the one to be the one who condescends, the one who comes down and humiliates himself, humbles himself. And I think both those words are appropriate because we find in Hebrews chapter 12 that even though there was this joy of salvation set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame of that cross. But he lisps to us. He reveals God to us in a way that we can, although comprehend, sometimes it's hard to comprehend. (laughs) But the glorious truth is that's who Jesus is. What we find in Christ, can I just add a little bonus side note here? What we find in Christ is no longer natural revelation, right? That's the kind of revelation we find in Romans chapter 1. In the women's study, you guys are going through Romans, and you're gonna, when you get to Romans 1, especially after verse 16 and following, you're going to find that God reveals himself in creation enough so that you are without excuse, That you have no reason to boast. That you, because of creation, because of nature and the image of God within you, you singularly have to give an account before God. And God doesn't have to do anything else. God does not owe you a savior. God does not owe you plan B. God does not owe you a way out. Because you are accountable simply by what exists in nature. And we call that natural revelation. That what I have within myself, what I see in creation around me. But those apart from Christ suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And we press it down because, again, we like what's here and not there so much more. And then we have special revelation. Special revelation comes to us, us right now, first of all, in this book here. This is sacred scripture. We know this is the authoritative word of God. We have absolute assurance of what's contained in this book being God's holy word. But special revelation also came through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is getting at here, again, at the very beginning of his book. No longer is it just these inter-little peeps from God all throughout history, right? He, it wasn't uniform. He didn't constantly speak all throughout history. There's very few periods of time where God actually spoke in the Old Testament. But here now, the revelation we have is he has revealed himself so thoroughly and so authoritatively that those little blips are no longer necessary, which is why we don't have prophets and apostles anymore. No matter what Big B Bethel wants to say up the road there, we don't have that anymore. We don't need that anymore. The foundation has been laid. The prophets have come and they've pointed us to Jesus Christ, the big P prophet, and we need no other revelation from God other than what we find in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Now look at Hebrews with me, will you? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Now even for those of us who went through Hebrews, it's been quite a while since we were in Hebrews chapter 1. While you're turning there, the point of the book is to show you that Jesus Christ is greater than anything else. And so it begins kind of like where John begins, with a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? All kinds of ways, right? There's prophet Moses, right? He came down from the mountain and his face was glowing because he was there in the presence of God. You have Ezekiel who did all kinds of weird stuff, right? I mean, man, that book is bizarre. Isaiah laid on his side for like a year and a half to reveal things about God. Jeremiah <clears throat> he was thrown in a pit and he, would, he bought a piece of land God told him to buy in order to reveal something about the destruction that was to come. Many times and in many ways God spoke in times past. But, verse 2, in these last days, notice last days, side note, last days aren't the seven year tribulation. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God, right? If I were to have a big old spotlight behind me and I was standing here, you would see the radiance around me, but you would still see my silhouette, right? That's the point. The point is, when you see Jesus, you see the radiance of the glory of God and you see Jesus Christ. He is the perfect revelation of God himself. If God the Father or God the Spirit had come down and taken on human flesh like Christ did, there'd be no difference. He is the exact revelation of God. Pardon me. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, if you're in John, flip back to John. What you'll find is this is the same place where John goes himself. He says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point for very long because in our Advent services, you'll remember, we spent a lengthy amount of time on Jesus being the creator. But it is important to point out that Jesus not only was with God, but was the creator of all things. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1 really quick. Colossians chapter 1. A little helpful tip is right after Acts and comes first and second Colossians. And then you think a little acronym, go eat popcorn. P, go, Galatians, eat, Ephesians, P, Philippians, C, Colossians. I don't know. If that helps, praise God. If not, throw it out. 
Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, lest you think firstborn means he was the first one of all creation, it does not mean that. What he's talking about is Jesus is the preeminent of everything that exists in all of creation, not that he was the very first one of the created beings. He is the firstborn of all creation for, here's why he is the preeminent of everything, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created the universe and the earth and everything that's in it, but he also created the heavens. That's something that I don't hear taught on very much. The very throne room of God that we read about in several little snippets. Daniel chapter 7. Revelations chapter 4 and 5. Isaiah chapter 6. We see these pictures of the throne room of heaven and God sitting on his throne. High, exalted, lofty and lifted up. And what we need to think here even in in this text is that all of that that John sees there. All of that that Isaiah sees there. All of that that is seen by Daniel there in the throne room was created by Jesus as well. All of the angels that exist have ever existed. If there's any that have been destroyed, I don't know about that yet. But all the angels that exist were created by Jesus. You see, he's not just the first and the the best of creation. He is God Almighty himself who has created all things on earth, in the universe, and things that exist in heaven. Whether visible or invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the fullness of God. Everything is for Jesus. Anything less than him being God Almighty, that sentence doesn't make sense. Because everything is for God. Jesus, therefore, must be God. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus has always existed. He is there as one of the members of the Trinity that existed before time began. Before time began, they determined what they were going to do in every single way, shape, and form. They predestined it all. Everything exists according to and in the exact precision as God determined it to exist. All people exist exactly when they were supposed to. All plants exist exactly where they were supposed to. Someone might say, you know, that silly little thing. Well, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Of course, because God. It's glorifying God. Everything exists to glorify God. The furthest pulsar out there exists to glorify God. Our nearest star exists to glorify God. Everything exists for the glory of God. And it all exists according to Colossians 1 for Jesus Christ. And this great creator of all things comes down 
and walks among his own creation here on this tiny little dust ball spinning in the universe. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely amazing that God would see fit to do such a thing and that this would be the thing that brings him glory. But it does. It does. Verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In Jesus is life. And Jesus says as much. If you remember in John chapter 14, and you can turn there if you want or just listen, but in John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he tells them that passage about, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for all of you. And if I am doing this, then I'm going to bring you all to be with me. And then um, Philip, he chimes in, pardon me, Thomas chimes in and says, Lord, we don't know you're going, where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you know my Father, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. But Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you don't know? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and we'll stop right there for that particular section. But Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And on top of that, Jesus says to respond to Thomas that he is the only way to get to the Father. He's the only way to have life. He is the only light unto the world that leads the way to where we desperately need to go, who live in darkness. Darkness hasn't overcome the light because it can't, because it was even created by Christ. You see, there was no darkness before there was creation. There was only God. Darkness cannot overcome because it exists by God's will and God's intention and God's purpose and God's power. Evil will not win the day. Evil will not ultimately triumph because it cannot. Because Jesus is the creator of all things and nothing can ever conquer the great creator, Jesus Christ himself. In the book of first, pardon me, second Peter. In the book of second Peter. I think it's still in my Bible. There it is. Um, Peter. In talking about Christ, he says in verse 16 of chapter 1. We, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Now, Peter here, the picture he's painting is one of that transfiguration. We're in a day and age where people love signs and wonders. People love the hooky spooky. They want all manner of touchy-feelies and to get the goosebumps. And that supposedly is a reason why I know I encountered God, because I had the feeling. I felt it. Well, Peter here, he's giving us this glorious picture of the transfiguration, and he paints such a picture that this glorious host comes around him, and here it speaks from heaven, and it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And there's no greater experience than this that one could have had there's none in fact peter said right before pardon me jesus said right before that particular experience that there were some with him who wouldn't die until they saw the glory of god and this event was the glory of god that he was referring to this transfiguration but peter doesn't stop there he goes on to say and says this in verse 19 we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Think about that. Peter was the one who tried to build tabernacles up there. He tried to build little shrines to Elijah and Moses and Jesus there. And God had to tell him to shut up, basically. That's why God said, this is my beloved son. It was in responses to Peter being stupid, being thick, being a dude. And he learned his lesson, though, and he says, even though I encountered this and it was the greatest of experiences, we have a more sure prophetic word. It's been fully confirmed to us, which you do well to pay attention. Listen, in light of our text here, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Peter says, you do well to pay attention. It's a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy comes from someone's own private interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but only men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it is exactly true of even Jesus himself. We'll see in John chapter 5 that Jesus says, I only speak those things that my Father tells me to or leads me to speak. They are in perfect, absolute harmony. And we would do well to listen to this word, to listen to Jesus Christ as that morning star that he is shines in our hearts because no darkness will overcome it. He is the light. He is the light. If we want to find out, if we are feeling like we're in darkness in our lives in terms of what do I need to do or this or that, what you don't need to do is do some kind of pokey scripture talk. You know, where you thumb your way through some verse and whatever it says, that's what I'm going to do. People do that kind of all the thing all the time. Or, you know, go down and do a Jericho march around what it is you want to conquer and You know, you've you've probably heard those kind of silly things before. No, what you need is more Jesus. 
You need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels. You don't need a thing to say, where am I going to move or what job should I take? What you need is more Jesus. And believe me, the more Jesus that you get into your head, into your life, into your heart, through praying, through reading, through just meditating on his word, he will lead you and guide you in the way that we should go. It's without a doubt. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness here in this book and because it is the revelation of God himself who is the word. Beloved, Jesus is the greatest thing. Jesus is all that there is. And John gives us these superlative words. He was the word. He is God. He was with God. He was creator of everything. In him was life. In him is light. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. You can just hear John as he gets started just being like, whoa, and getting carried away with how wonderful Jesus is. At least I hope you can. I kind of am. I could just sit here forever and be thinking and just thinking and thinking and praying and loving Jesus more and more and more because he is truly what we need. And as we go through this book, this is what we're going to find over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. May we, like the song says, find that the things of this earth go strangely dim in light of his glorious grace. Lord, We thank you for this beautiful revelation that you've given to us of yourself in your son. Lord, we can't exhaust the knowledge of you and who you are. All we can do is exhaust the language to try to describe you and who you are. But Lord, I pray that with our minds being stretched and our hearts being inflamed to love you and to embrace you more lord jesus that we would find this glorious truth to be resounding in us over and over and over again that you are enough you are the greatest you are the chief of all beings and we give you all glory and all honor and all praise thank you lord and in your name we pray Amen.